Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. It's Monday morning, and uh, getting the week started off right with another another episode. This time, it's a little more uh, political, and it might not be the most easygoing way to start off your week if you're listening right now, but um, it's a topic that has to be addressed, and this is systemic discrimination in the United States, and uh, particularly systemic discrimination against black people. Um, this has been going on, as we know, since the times of slavery, when the first slave was brought to the United States in 1619. Yeah, so for 400 years, you guys, um, this practice has, has been going on, and it hasn't stopped just because it's it's 400 years later, That because there are many methods that were put in place to continue to discriminate against black people in the United States. And we're going to discuss some of these things today. Starting with, um, we're going to start with uh, after slavery, the emancipation. um, And we're going to focus on the practices that a lot of people may not know about. Everybody knows about slavery. Everybody knows how horrible that was, but not a lot of people understand, um, some of the other practices that have still been put in place after slavery. So uh, what is systemic discrimination? Well, this is the pattern uh, of behavior, policies, or practices that's part of the structures of an organization and creates or perpetuates disadvantage based on race. So it is an institutionalized form of discrimination. It's not just the discrimination or racism that you see perhaps on the street if someone calls someone a name or if someone looks down upon someone. This is ingrained in culture. That's what systemic discrimination is. And that's what's been happening in the United States for many years. One of the most racist things I ever heard someone say is, he said, why are black people so still so far behind? Slavery ended so long ago they're the only ethnic group who hasn't recovered. And I'm not making this up. I actually heard somebody um, say this. And uh, I hope that this episode will illuminate some of these factors that have held black people back and have caused them to be so far behind as he as he erroneously claims. But um, hopefully this will illuminate some of these factors that have... have uh, held black people down for so many years now, even after slavery, and why it's a misnomer that black people should already be at a certain economic standing in general, um, or should have advanced to a certain point, even though slavery is has been terminated. The main source for some of these things is the book um, by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow, this talks about a lot of these systemic discriminatory practices that have happened um, since slavery. And the 13th is a documentary that was involved in, in the creation of this episode and some other sources as well. But that those were kind of the, the meat of this. Well, let's start with the illusory, illusory nature of freedom after the Emancipation Proclamation, after slavery ended, um, why weren't black people free? Why didn't everything just go uh, to normal for black people? Well, there were constitutional amendments guaranteeing African-Americans equal protection of the laws and the right to vote, but 
These things proved useless due to significant backlash, especially from southern states. Um, What was happening was that without the labor of former slaves, the economy would surely collapse without slavery, is what um, a lot of southern states understood. So this created an extraordinary dilemma for Southern white society, and how are we going to keep up our economy of free labor? Free labor, excuse me. Well, what emerged was something called the Black Codes, and the Black Codes were essentially uh, forms of systemic discrimination. These were laws that were imposed upon Black people to try to continue to restrict them and continue to create some of this free labor all over again. So black people were fined if they worked in any occupation other than farming or domestic servitude. They were not free to choose what they wanted to do. And if they broke these laws or if they committed any sort of even petty misdemeanor like loitering, um, they were forced back into unpaid labor on white plantations, just like what was happening during slavery. So immediately after this emancipation, they were still forced back into unpaid labor for the smallest of crimes and even if they weren't really crimes and even if they were just walking normally they could be apprehended and they could be uh, sentenced and forced back to work for free lawmakers also sought to prevent black people from migrating in search of safety and economic opportunity they were not even free uh, they did not even have free mobilization to go where they wanted to go And there were these things called emigrant agent laws that were enacted that restricted interstate labor recruiters from financing the relocation of black workers or from posting advertisements in predominantly black communities for distant job openings. So there were laws imposed that were not even allowing advertisements to go to black communities to show them that there were opportunities available elsewhere that they could work for um, for pay or receive um, greater uh, economic benefits um, in in other places these were the emigrant agent laws and you couldn't even recruit these black people from from these uh, poor communities what happened also during this period of of the black codes was what's called the jim crow laws the jim crow laws were statutes that legalized racial segregation this these laws marginalized african americans by denying them the right to vote hold jobs get an education or access other opportunities so in a similar way to these black codes um black people were again discriminated against um, from a top down, from the lawmaker um, down to them in a systemic fashion. And during these Jim Crow laws, black people were, were also relegated to the worst parts of town. So r- roads, paved roads, literally stopped at the border of many neighborhoods, and these shifted from pavement to dirt. And also water, sewage systems, and other public services that supported the white areas of town often did not extend to the black areas. There was a total uh, discrimination of even um, construction in, in black areas. So these areas uh, inherently uh, decreased in value from where black people were attempting to make a new a newfound living. There were poll taxes. There were literary literacy tests, excuse me, and other devices that were implemented to prevent blacks from voting. So immediately after emancipation, black people um, 
for instance, in Louisiana, so in 1896, Louisiana had 130,334 registered black voters, right? But eight years later, after these poll taxes and literacy tests and other devices were implemented, only 1,342 black residents could vote. So only 1% could, could pass the state's new rules and were able to vote after these Jim Crow laws were imposed. So um, you might say, uh, oh, how, but how does this only affect black people? If it's a widespread literacy test or a poll tax, shouldn't everybody be affected in a way? No. White residents, even those who are low income and illiterate, were conveniently exempted from literacy tests thanks to what was called these grandfather clauses. Um, and these allowed anyone who was eligible to vote prior to the 15th Amendment, along with their descendants, to vote in elections, effectively giving almost all white people the right to vote, despite any lack of literacy on their part. So, um, these poll taxes and literacy tests made it virtually impossible for black citizens to participate in Southern elections due to this confusing nature of these literacy tests and these uh, exorbitant poll taxes that black people could not pay. And as you see in Louisiana, the numbers were cut down from 100,000 to 1,000 that were able to vote after these poll, ta poll taxes and, and literacy tests were imposed. But white residents there was essentially no difference because of these grandfather clauses. If your uh, family had been able to vote in the past, you can still vote, even if you're illiterate and even if you can't pay the poll tax. This is the systemic discrimination that started to go on immediately after slavery. Um, and of course, during slavery, but immediately after and, and perpetuated. There was also housing discrimination a little bit after um so there was something called redlining so the redlining is the guiding of prospective buyers based on their race to undesirable neighborhoods um and as you can as you can probably guess it was the guiding of prospective african-american buyers to undesirable neighborhoods this is a practice that um actually uh, a lot of uh, companies and, and people have been accused of doing as recently as as just a few years ago. Um, and and what essentially was happening was that African-Americans who were able to afford homes found themselves consigned to only inner city communities. If they wanted to get a house in, in the wider communities, they couldn't. It would be marked off as sold, and that was reserved for a white family. They didn't want black people moving into some of these neighborhoods because of the thought that it would reduce uh, the value of their home as soon as a black family moved in. So the the homes of these black families, uh, they then deteriorated in value in comparison to the homes and communities that the Federal Housing Administration appraisers initially deemed desirable. So their communities and their homes depreciated in value, whereas the white uh, homes and communities appreciated in value because they were in these uh, desirable areas as, a, as, as appointed by the Federal Housing Administration. The issue with redlining and why it has, has uh, held black people back is because in the United States, two-thirds of America's wealth exists in home ownership. And this practice of redlining now immediately reduces the prospect of black families to accumulate wealth across the generations. If you're 
if the value of your home and community is now depreciating because you were sent into an inner city or bad area, you're not going to be able to accumulate wealth across the generations. And this has been a huge factor in driving a lot of black people to poverty. What happened next is the so-called war on drugs. The war on drugs was initially coined by Richard Nixon and but <laughs> what in reality though there is no truth to the notion that the war on drugs was launched in response to uh to actual drugs or crack cocaine as as they were really tr uh, supposedly going against so why is there no truth to the idea that the war on drugs was launched in response to drugs well president ronald reagan uh who kind of officially continued this war on drugs after Nixon officially announced the drug war in 1982. This is before crack uh, became an issue in media or a crisis in poor black neighborhoods. It wasn't until years after the drug war was declared that crack finally began to spread rapidly in poor black neighborhoods of Los Angeles and later across the country. Um, you might wonder if it wasn't the war on drugs, what was it the war upon? It was really the war upon black people in inner city communities, and we'll get to that in a second. Well, the Reagan administration publicized uh, this new emergence of crack cocaine when it, when it finally did begin to emerge in 1985 as part of an effort to build public and legislative support for the war. And soon enough, the media became filled with images of black crack dealers, crack babies, and black-on-black -black crime. So... This was essentially a ploy to infiltrate these inner city communities, despite them uh, not even using or selling drugs at a higher rate than other communities. Okay, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Um, the CIA actually even admitted in 1998 that guerrilla armies it actively supported in Nicaragua at the time were smuggling illegal drugs into the United States. And the CIA also admitted that in the midst of the war on drugs, it blocked law enforcement efforts to investigate these illegal drug networks that were helping to fund its covert war in Nicaragua. So what was happening was that these smuggled drugs ended up making their way onto the streets of inner city black neighborhoods in the form of crack cocaine. And they invested these neighborhoods and essentially the United States was, was allowing this to pass. And infest these these poor black neighborhoods um and with these these newly instantiated harsh sentencing sentencings for drug crimes uh, due to this war on drugs the united states now had the ability to put these offenders to jail for life and keep them in the profitable prison system this is all almost like a ploy to incarcerate mass amounts of uh, african americans and minorities into this prison system you might ask why why do you, why would we want to do this um this mass incarceration as a country well mass incarceration is a staple of the u.s economy actually so killer mike i've referenced him before because this is my i think is his best song ever in my opinion because of how political it is and um the truth that it that it communicates he says um Thanks to Reaganomics, prisons turn to profits because free labor is the cornerstone of U.S. economics because slavery was abolished unless you are in prison. You think that I am BSing? Then read the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude and slavery it prohibits. That's why they're giving time, giving drug offenders time in double digits. That's from Killer Mike's Reaganomics. 
So he talks about the 13th Amendment here. He says, slavery is abolished unless you're in prison. Uh, you think I'm BSing? Just read the 13th Amendment. Well, what does the 13th Amendment say? It says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States except as punishment for a crime. If you, if you are a criminal, then it allows them to exploit you and for you to perform involuntary servitude in the United States. And that is what the prisons are doing. So the United States have exploited this, this, this loophole in the 13th Amendment to continue this involuntary servitude, which the country has been built upon since the days of slavery. And this is like... Um, this was mind-boggling to me when I first kind of started reading about it and learning about what is actually happening in the United States and trying to follow the trails of money and, and why there's this mass incarceration of minorities in the United States. Um, we'll talk about here uh, public prisons. So um, how do these prisons make money off of mass incarceration? Well, the Federal Bureau of Prisons actually runs a program called Unicor that pays inmates under $1 an hour. Um, but this program generates $500 million in sales in 2016, with little of that cash being passed on to prison workers. Prison workers actually often make as little as $0.23 cents an hour for this involuntary servitude that they have to do to produce all sorts of things for big corporations. So the corporate beneficiaries of this uh, this uh, prison labor and in in a sense involuntary servitude um, are some of the largest corporations and most widely known brands so walmart has purchased bulk produce from farms that prisoners work on and mcdonald's has used uniforms made by prison laborers and prison laborers have also produced things for boeing and things um for uh for federal defense in 2013, federal inmates made $100 million worth of military uniforms, and I'm pretty sure with 23 cents on an hour, um, you can see that the inmates didn't get a lot of these profits at all and were not paid for the valuable creation of these, these military uniforms. These are the public prisons, how they make money off of involuntary servitude, and private prisons do as well. So in private prisons, oftentimes short phone calls from prison can cost up to $15, largely because the companies operate as monopolies within prison walls. There's no competition that says, no, we can't be charging $15 for a 15-minute call to a family. In the same way that these monopolies also play out with what's called video visitation. A lot of private prisons have done away with in-person visitation, and they've created this video visitation terminal uh, idea. And these terminals can charge as much as $30 for 40 minutes of screen time. So again, these private prisons are making money off of by exploiting the prisoners want to communicate with their families. So private prisons earn over a billion dollars a year on average. And this is why the they routinely lobby Congress for lengthier prison sentences. Because as the country's inmate population expands, so does their revenue. So this is this mass incarceration and how it is helping uh, the prison system in both public and private uh, areas. Um, we'll talk now, what we've talked about is kind of just generally this mass incarceration, and this could be um, 
for whites, for blacks, for Latinos, for anybody. Um, but let's talk about how this discriminatory mass incarceration has targeted blacks and minorities specifically. It's not, they're not just mass, incar- mass incarcerating everybody. It's, it's, it's blacks and it's minorities. And here are the facts to back this up. The rate of black admissions to prison was nearly 20 times the white rate by the early 1990s as the war on drugs intensified. Um, black men make up 6% of the U.S. population, but 40% of the prison population. These numbers are starting to not add up. One in every 14 black men was behind bars in 2006, compared with one in every 106 white men. So you may be asking what these Uh, unbelievable statistics showing this disproportionate sentencing. You may say, oh, uh, maybe black people just commit more crime (laughs) or or something as foolish as that. Well, this is not the case. Blacks are roughly 13% of the U.S. population, but 12% of the regular drug users. So it almost completely matches up uh, in terms of the the population compared to how many blacks people use drugs in the United States. So even though they're 13% of the population and only 12% of the drug users, they're 35% of the people arrested for drug offenses and 43% of the people convicted for drug crimes and 54% of the people sent to prison for those offenses. So there's an unfair sentencing happening here, you guys. A 2013 ACLU research study concluded that even though blacks and whites use marijuana at similar rates, a black person is 3.73 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than a white person. And in the worst offending counties across the country, blacks were over 10, 15, and even 30 times more likely to be arrested than white residents. Um, just to show this, this unbelievable and unfair discriminatory practice of mass incarceration of black people is happening you guys and it's happening right under everybody's nose this is part of the reason why i wanted to bring some of these issues up because it's real what's happening the insightful thinkers podcast i'm trying to communicate real things that are that are happening and in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics these are not conspiratory things these are not fake things these are not um it's not a um a misnomer or a um it's not wrong to believe that there is discrimination happening in the united states and this these are things that have to be communicated and i'm going to use this platform to do that um now more african-american men of any age were incarcerated then we're enrolled in higher education in 2000, you guys. And that is one of the saddest things because um, we talk a lot about on in this podcast about how important education is for the mind and expanding your mind and uh, allowing you to share knowledge with other people. Without education, I would, wouldn't be able to do any of this. I wouldn't be able to understand these figures. I wouldn't be able to communicate these figures correctly um, to share with with anybody else, and when you have more African American men locked up, seven hundred ninety one thousand, than in higher education, six hundred three thousand in two thousand, that does not spell well for um, that entire population, and it's just a sad situation that's happening there. How they're locking these people up rather than uh, bringing them up, and 
and helping to to push this population forward, especially in the United States, you guys. Well, some people still might ask. Maybe the the person who said that racist comment that I mentioned at the start of the episode, he still may ask. Could this be coincidental? Maybe it's just a coincidence that African Americans are locked up at greater rates. No, it's not. The Nixon, the Richard Nixon advisor, uh, a Richard Nixon advisor, John Ehrlichman, said these words. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and the black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing, criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Oh my gosh, guys, this is like a, it's a systemic issue. And it's, it's scary reading something like that when a Nixon advisor is saying these words uh, straight from the top down. They're they're suppressing black people in the United States. There's no way around it. One of my favorite songs ever is Gangstar, Conspiracy. Gangstar is a hip-hop, a legendary hip-hop group. Uh, with It was a duo, DJ Premier, one of the best hip-hop producers ever, and Guru, one of the best MCs ever. So you, <laughs> you can see why this is one of the greatest hip-hop uh, groups ever. Uh, Guru says these words in the song called Conspiracy. Uh, he says, and every time there's violence shown on the media, usually it's a black thing. So where are they leading you? To a world full of ignorance, hatred, and prejudice. The TV and the news, for years they have fed you this. Foolish notion that blacks are all criminals, violent lowlifes, and then even animals. I'm telling the truth, so some suckers are fearing me, but I must do my part to combat the conspiracy. Those are some of the greatest bars you'll ever hear in hip-hop. Some of the, some of this political... Um, hip-hop, this uprising uh, happened in the 90s in this golden age of hip-hop. And we definitely have to do an episode about the golden age of hip-hop and some of the quality that was uh, that was just communicated through music and some of the poetry that was happening in the 90s, you guys. That is just pure poetry and political at the same time. And it is not false what he's saying. He's essentially communicating what what this Nixon advisor, John Ehrlichman, was saying about how um, they really are trying to turn people against black people and uh, vilify them night after night on the evening news. And in a, in a, in a very, um, I, I, I can't find the word for it, but in a very um, caustic way and in a very retaliatory way, way i guess you could say um guru says the tv and the news for years they have fed you this this foolish notion that blacks are all criminals violent lowlifes and then even animals the news they feed you this this perception of black people in lowly states and it fuels this stereotypical thinking completely and this is happening from the media and it's commissioned by straight from the united states government you guys Listen to that song because that goes very well with what, um, especially those bars go very well with what we're talking about in this episode. Um, man, it's just, uh, 
it's hurtful and it's uh but it's powerful the way that uh mcs like guru have been able to communicate that and just try it it's just about sharing knowledge man with people who don't understand because not everybody understands what the government is doing not everybody knows um why these stereotypical views exist of of black people and things like this but when uh when people like Guru say these words and a lot of people listen, or hopefully even if a couple people can listen to what uh, I'm saying now, it can just change people's minds and make people understand what's actually happening out here. And this is what part of the reason, sorry, we're going on a tangent here and we'll resume shortly uh, with, uh, with systemic discrimination in the United States. But um, this is kind of the goal of what we're doing here you guys it's sharing insightful discussions to create an open line of communication to expand uh, uh, everybody's mind in a sense and uh, for me to get feedback from you guys and for you guys to share your ideas as well and that's where we're going to go with this and i'm just hoping by st at least starting the spark or or, or lighting the match that eventually this can spread and it can be um shared among a lot of people you guys and kind of just like with with uh with gangstar and what they were saying and with the words that guru said and when that reaches the minds of, of young people and when when guru communicates these things about what the united states are doing and how to um, stand strong in the face of this adversity it really lifts people up man knowledge really is power in a lot of ways and when you gain knowledge about what's happening uh you become a master of your environment and your environment can no longer hold you back even if they're peddling night after night vilification of black people on the news as the nixon advisor said himself um well let's continue here so could this be coincidental well hopefully a lot of people listening who have had reservations about systemic discrimination already understand that this is not a coincidence that black people have been targeted. Let's add one more quote onto the pile here. This is from the Reagan campaign strategist Lee Atwater. So obviously Reagan after Nixon continued this war on drugs um, and he especially heavily carried it out. And Lee Atwater, the campaign strategist, guys, for, for Reagan says, you start out by saying the N-word. Um, and he actually used the word in the quote, but I'm not going to use it in, in, in this production. But in, in 1968, you can't say that, he says. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. I mean, it is self-explanatory, you guys. This is not a... Con even though the song by Gangstar was called Conspiracy, it's not it's not a conspiracy. It's real it's not a conspiracy theory. It's real stuff that, that is that has happened from the top down to suppress black people. Let's go back to Reagan by Killer Mike. Um it's yeah, the song is so aptly titled, guys, for this episode. Uh listen to that one too. I've mentioned that in another podcast. I mentioned that in To Pimp a Butterfly. Uh, analysis because he talks about these political issues facing black people Ray, uh, reagan killer mike he says 
They declared the war on drugs, just like the war on terror. But what it really did was let the police terrorize whoever, but mostly black boys, and they would call us the N-word, and lay us on our belly while their fingers were on their triggers. So this war on drugs that they declared, it was not the war on drugs. It was the war on the black people in the United States of America, guys. And, uh... Michelle Alexander from the new Jim Crow that I talked about as one of the primary sources for this, this episode, she continues this line of thought in discussing the specific targeting of black people in the war on drugs. So, um, she's, I'll quote directly from her because she puts it so incredibly. She says, the drug war could have been waged primarily in overwhelmingly white suburbs or on college campuses. SWAT teams could have repelled from helicopters in gated suburban communities and raided the homes of high school lacrosse players known for hosting coke and ecstasy parties after their games. But no, they did, the war on drugs did not go after these people. It went after the inner city communities, the, the poor black communities. We're going to, the final section... Uh, of this episode, we're going to talk about just some general discrimination in law and order, not necessarily with the war on drugs policies. Another counter argument, I guess, for people who still aren't convinced of systemic discrimination in the United States and who may say, okay, I understand about the Jim Crow laws, I understand about slavery, I understand about the war on drugs, but what about now? Uh, is there still this stuff happening? Yes, it is still happening. We'll start with the Jim Crow days, though, when African-Americans accounted for 405 of the 455 executions for rape between 1930 and 1972. So, <laughs> obviously, black people were not the only people raping others, but they were pretty much the only people getting executed for those crimes in the Jim Crow days. But more recently... In the United States, uh, black men are six times as likely to go to jail uh, or prison than white men. This is a study by Gao in 2013. Uh, and although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers nationwide are white, three quarters of the people in prison for drug offenses have been black or Latino. So these numbers just simply do not add up. Black men have been admitted to state prison on drug charges at a rate that is more than 13 times higher than white men. You guys, these gross racial disparities simply cannot be explained by rates of illegal drug activity among African Americans. They simply do not commit crimes at that much greater of a rate that they should be locked up at that kind of a rate. Because remember, we mentioned this statistic that blacks are roughly 13% of the U.S. population, and 12% of the drug users, they use drugs at a regular rate compared to other groups, yet they're six times more likely to go to jail. Um, and they've been admitted to, to state prison on drug charges at a rate more than 13 times higher than white men. It just doesn't add up, you guys. There's no other answer other than systemic discrimination um, in the United States, guys. And that's why... Uh, I felt it very important to communicate these things, especially in these times that we're going through now, you guys. In New Jersey, the data showed that, um, the data showed, a study showed uh, that only 15% of drivers in the New Jersey turnpike were racial minorities. Um, 
but 42% of all stops and 73% of all arrests were of these black motorists, despite the fact that blacks and whites violated traffic laws at almost exactly the same rate. Most people, why are most people that are getting stopped black people, even though they're violating uh, laws at the same rate? And they don't even, they only make up 15% of all drivers on the New Jersey Turnpike. It makes absolutely no sense. Studies in Maryland also echoed these results. African Americans comprise 17% of drivers, similar to the 15% of drivers on the New Jersey Turnpike, they, they comprise 17% of drivers along a stretch of I-95 outside of Baltimore, but they were 70% of those who were stopped and searched. The numbers speak for themselves, you guys. I don't need to, <laughs> to add anything to this. A, a 2001 study in Oakland, California showed that African Americans were approximately twice as likely as whites to be stopped and three times as likely to be searched. Data collected by the Ferguson Police Department from 2012 to 2014 shows that African Americans account for 85% of vehicle stops, 90% of citations, and 93% of arrests made by FPD officers despite comprising only 67% of the population. A Columbia University study found that from 2010 to 2012, blacks and Latinos were significantly more likely to be stopped than whites. Blacks and Latinos made up 84% of the stops, a far higher percentage than their proportion in the population. Even after controlling for crime, local social conditions, and the concentration of police officers in particular areas, they were significantly more likely to be stopped than whites. And one more, you guys. A 1990s New Haven study found that even after controlling for 11 variables relating to the severity of the alleged offense, bail amounts set for black male defendants were 35% higher than those for their white male counterparts. Uh, sorry to flood you. Well, no, I'm not sorry to flood you guys with the statistics because it needs to be said. And, um, Obviously, as you can tell, these are not just my <laughs> my random facts that I came up with out of nowhere. These are serious Columbia University studies. These are police department studies. These are serious studies, mm, serious texts, serious research uh, projects that show these things consistently across the United States. Guys, look it up for yourself. I didn't say every single statistic that exists showing the systemic discrimination in, in law and order generally. There's so many others, you guys, but this is all that uh, I was able to find in, in my background research for this episode, but it doesn't mean that there's not a lot more scary things that are happening uh, out there, you guys. So I hope that this can this episode conveyed, at least in some way, why it can be said uh, that Black Lives Matter. And some people really get offended when these words are said, well, there's a uh, a study from from uh, or an article from Moore, Adoyan, and Robinson in 2018, and I'm going to quote from them because they put it in such an eloquent way as to why it can be said that Black Lives Matter and why you can't be uh, contradicting that with saying all lives matter and become upset when you hear that Black Lives Matter. They say this. Is from 2018. They say critics of the Black Lives Matter movement argue that equality is about all lives, and saying black lives is limiting and a form of racism. The answer is simple. 
Those who have issue with the term black do not recognize their own privileges and why there is both a historical and systemic need to focus on the brutality the black community has faced throughout America's existence. If black lives mattered in the United States, we would not see such disproportional rates of poverty, incarceration, school dropout, lack of secure housing, and other socially significant factors. To not recognize racism as an ongoing problem only exacerbates the issue, silences and marginalizes those affected by it, and does not start the process of discourse on how to change cultural and social paradigms in society that only see young black men as thugs. You guys, um, hopefully uh, this... Um, this added something to your to your Monday, your Monday morning, if you're listening on the, the day of release. And I know this one was a little more political. I know this one was not as light. It was <laughs> the last episode we just did was on psychedelics. That's the total, almost total opposite of what we've talked about here. But it's in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics, you guys. It's not the same topic every time. And it's not, um, it's not gonna be all uh all fun and games and all uh stuff just for the sake of interest there are gonna be some serious things that we have to discuss on here because it's a topic that deserves an in-depth analysis into it and i hope i did this issue of systemic racism and discrimination in the united states at least some justice you guys because it's very important to me um uh and uh it should be important to a lot of people, I think, you guys. And uh, I think that wraps it up. I think I think I've communicated everything that I set out here to communicate, and I'm I'm kind of hesitant to close out this episode, I guess, because um, uh, this I I really want to do this topic justice. If this is the only time I'm ever going to cover it, and. Um, as I mentioned, you guys, I didn't report every single statistic. I didn't report every single thing, but I, um, I just tried to give a broad picture of what's been happening in the United States. And, um, as a rebuttal to people, who, people like that person who said, why are black people still so far behind? Slavery ended so long ago. They're the only ethnic group I haven't recovered. And I hope this serves as a rebuttal to people like that. Um, this is the first really serious episode <laughs> on the Insightful Thinkers podcast, you guys. Um, but uh, it's important nevertheless. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, please share it um, with someone else you, who you think uh, could value from this this content that you heard in this episode particularly, or who is interested in these issues of systemic discrimination in the United States, you guys. And um, I, think, I think these are important conversations we need to have, especially in these times. Um, so don't hesitate. Uh, to let other people know about it um, or, or listen with somebody else and, and have a discussion between between you guys um, and, and hopefully it creates some kind of conversations, you guys. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. So whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or anywhere else. And Apple Podcasts, you guys, it allows you to leave a rating and a review. And YouTube allows you to like the video or dislike the video if uh, you do not like what you heard today. Um, <laughs> you know what I say that because some people really are not going to like what they heard today because some people really do not like hearing black lives matter. People do not like hearing about 
the discriminatory practices in the United States. And for those people, please um, show show your dislike to this. Dislike the video um, because it, you know what? It, I'd rather you you come here and release your anger here um, than anywhere else in the real world. But these are facts um, that needed to be communicated, you guys. Needed to be communicated, excuse me. Um, please share your own ideas as well or questions from the connect page on the website or in the YouTube comments section. Um, and if you are on the website, check out the blog post. There's a new poem on there. And uh, there's also articles on there that you may find interesting as well. You may be interested in this topic, but then there's also an analysis about the movie Parasite. So in-depth uh, analysis, diverse set of topics, you guys. And uh, these are mostly topics that, that I like and that I'm interested in, but maybe you guys will find a couple of them interesting as well. If you want to join the monthly ITP video conference call, you can support the podcast on Patreon, you guys. But in the end, whatever you do to support even if you're just listening right now or watching right now, that's more than enough, you guys. And uh, I've said from the start, I don't know if I've said this on podcast, but even if there's one listener, you guys, I'm not actually going to stop, believe it or not, <laughs> because these are important conversations. And I think even if one person hears this, then that value that it'll provide to that one person is good enough for me, you guys. I'm going to keep, we're going to keep punching in. We're punching in every Monday morning. We're, we're, we're punching in and uh, we're analyzing topics. We're sharing ideas and uh, please become a part of that. You guys share your ideas with me as well um, because we're going to keep rolling with this. You guys, um, it's just so, uh, every time I finish up, I, I just <laughs> on, on camera and on mic, I, I express, um, how much I, I love to communicate these things. And I try to hold a lot of it back for off camera because you guys don't need to hear every single time about how much I love doing something. But sometimes I can't hold it in you guys. But I hope I hope you guys uh, enjoy listening as much as I enjoy creating you guys. Thank you for tuning into the Insightful Thinkers podcast, everybody. We'll be back next Monday morning for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody.